As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and this weekend was an eventful one, both for Americans abroad and domestic. Uh, We're going to bring in Major League Soccer to our Americans performing weekend review, I guess is what I'm going to call it, uh, to help me go over some of those performances. We've got Joe Lowry back. Joe, we missed you. It's good to have you back on the program. Thank you, Taylor. I missed being here, and I am genuinely excited to be back. I love talking soccer, and I love talking soccer with you specifically. Oh, thanks, buddy. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I enjoy talking soccer with you specifically and Americans Abroad even more specifically. Uh, and I should note we had a few big performances or a few big moments for Americans, like Zach Steffen and Men City uh, winning the League Cup, Mark McKenzie off the bench to help Genk win the Belgium Cup final, Cameron Carter-Vickers, Daryl DK securing spots in the championship playoffs, but I don't think we're going to be talking about any of those players. Instead, we're going to talk about a couple players in Major League Soccer and then a few other of the uh, kind of common names for us at this point. But then again, when you've got a bunch of Americans abroad doing a bunch of different things, sometimes there tends to be a few repeat names in there. Uh, so Joe, with that disclaimer out of the way uh, and the addition that we're going to talk about the Champions League at the very end of this show, which player would you like to talk about first? Well, my question for you is, Taylor, would you prefer mm-hmm. me to start domestically or should we hop across the Atlantic? It's up to you. I think it's, I think let's go domestic. Since okay. you and I haven't talked much about Major League Soccer, it's obviously back. You are still discussing it in depth uh, over on MLS Assist. Uh, how has that been? How, what have been your thoughts on the season so far? It's been tons of fun. It's been so nice to have soccer games to talk about. Jordan and I have been loving it. The season's been great so far. Legitimately entertaining soccer. A lot of, of poor defensive moments, which I know you guys talked a bit about yesterday on the weekend review, you, Ryan, and Graham, hmm. but some some genuine quality as well. And Cade Cowell brought some quality over the weekend. He started, yes. scored, and had an assist in the San Jose Earthquakes 3-1 win over FC Dallas. I want to do a little bit of background, Taylor, on Cade Cowell, because Please. I think mm-hmm. he's a name that not a lot of folks will be as familiar with. So, He's 17 years old. He plays for the San Jose Earthquakes. As I said, he's a homegrown player for them. He's built like a tight end, but he runs yep. like a wide receiver. Uh, Tom Bogert tweeted, Cade Cow looks like the villainous character in a Disney movie about competitive rollerblading in California. So hopefully between his physical build and, and that's kind of getting at his hair and just general vibe. Listeners, you now have an idea of what Cade Cowell looks like. Taylor, he's shorter and lighter than Daryl DK. But I'd love to see Cade Cowell and Daryl DK battle for a 50-50 ball. I would, I'm not going to say I'd pay money for that, but it would be, it would be entertaining to be a fly on the wall as that happens. I think that's fair. Uh, One question that I'm not sure, or like one thing I'm not sure is fair. Did Tom say he was a Disney villain? Yeah, he's got that long flowing locks. He looks like he'd be the bad guy who gets the girl in a Disney movie, you know, for like the middle part of the movie. 
Oh, I see. So he's like like the the varsity uh, jerk <laughs> yeah, boyfriend yeah. who the the freshman has to win away. I see. Okay, now I'm yeah. with you. Yeah, and in in, in in reality, he actually is a San Jose Earthquake starting number nine across their first two games yeah. under Matias Almeida. He started Cade Cowell as a nine against Houston in Week One, and then again against FC Dallas this past weekend using uh, Andres Rios and then Wando off the bench as late game subs. And so Cowell's been the guy, and. In this game, not not so much in week one, but focusing on this past weekend, he was really, really good. He's so fast getting in behind. He's a real threat to actually stretch your back line and get into that space and get on the ball in those areas. Or as the ball turns over and maybe it's a counterattacking situation, he can run by you, beat that offside trap with a nice bending run. He did that three or four times in the first half of this Dallas game. Kate Cowell, I mean, he's only 17. He's not this hugely well-rounded forward yet. I'm not even sure if he's long-term a nine, or if he's more of a winger. He's in that Jordan Morris kind of mold, but he was a threatening player against FC Dallas in this game, and that's not even talking about the assist or the goal, which I will do. I just want to give you a chance to add in anything if you'd like to, Taylor. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly curious, and maybe this is a conversation for now or for later. I'll leave it to you. Uh, like, Almeida being, obviously, Marcelo Bielsa is on my mind. I did the 101 episode on him last week, and a lot of his disciples and learning about them and learning about their different sort of blends of what uh, Bielsa likes to do. Almeida is one of those people. And the kind of specialization that Bielsa has in training also seems to be something that Almeida has. This is all preamble to ask you, how much of this is Kate Cowell, do you think, being just an outright, naturally very good player? And how much of it do you think is him fitting the system really well? Or do we just not know yet because it's, it, it is still pretty early doors? I know he's been there for a while, but I think not that many appearances. So we sure. can't say for sure exactly what he's going to be long term. He played about 500 minutes last year. So it is still a small sample mm-hmm. size, even adding in these two starts this year. Taylor, that's a phenomenal question. I would love to learn more about how... Almeida trains and how he sets up those training sessions to equip his players. The interesting thing, though, with the Earthquakes is that number nine, the the spot that Cade Cowell's been playing, the nine is almost exempt from some of the Almeida man-marking stuff that the rest of the players do. They use that that center forward as a floater, and he'll move around from center back to center back to goalkeeper and press in the right moments or in the moments that he so chooses as opposed to every other outfield player minus one center back. That center back's the free man. But the other eight outfield players are man marking. K. Cowell's not really. And so I don't know how much credit or, or really how much responsibility mm-hmm. Cade Cowell has within the system because he does a lot of unique stuff relative to the rest of his outfield teammates. That's fair. And so I think as we like to do with these types of shows, the whole point of doing them is to sort of check in on players, not let one performance necessarily be sure. then the narrative of, oh, you know what, that's it. He's going to win the World Cup. But sort of taking these as opportunities to see what we like, what we didn't necessarily enjoy, and then how much the player develops or doesn't develop. So maybe that's the thing that you and I can pay attention to as we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not we're not saying Cade Cowell is going to win the World Cup after a performance like this, but Taylor, I'm kind of saying he's going to win the World Cup after a performance like this because he was <laughs> ridiculous. And now we're actually going to get to the meat that I really want to talk about. Let's do it. That Let's was it. that was a longer preamble, and I apologize for all that background. But I like it. He had in this game, he had a incredible outside of the foot through ball, outside of his right foot through ball in the 49th minute. The Earthquakes are back defending a corner. Cade Cowell recovers the ball, dribbles forward past the halfway line, sees right winger Christian Espinosa high on that right side looking for the ball. So naturally, Cade Cowell pulls out this insane right-footed outside of the foot through ball that bypasses five Dallas players, the last five players remaining defensively for Dallas, plays Espinosa right in on goal for the finish. I mean, that ball is insane. And then a few minutes later, about 10 minutes later in the second half, now in the 59th minute, Cade Cowell gets on the ball from Carlos Fierro on that right side. Uh, he's in the box on the right side of the box uh, for Dallas. And Matt Hedges and Jose Martinez can't deal with him. Cowell sidesteps Martinez and then faints past Matt Hedges and shoots before another defender can close him down. It is a it, it's a ridiculous piece of skill. On the assist, yes, and also on this goal, the quality on the ball that Kate Cowell exhibited in these two moments, he's winning a World Cup, Taylor. He's winning a World Cup. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I think he could. I think he'll also have the career trajectory of uh, Koreshma based on the Travella <laughs> abilities yeah. of that assist. Uh, because sometimes when we talk about Travellas and that outside of the football, sometimes it's very good. Uh, sometimes it is very good and also maybe mildly unnecessary yes. slash a sign that he doesn't have the player, doesn't have the opposite foot. And so they're using their dominant foot with the outside to make that pass happen. In this case, that might be the, might well be what like is actually what happened. But I saw it more as Cade Cowell, like recognizing a spot opening up and, and knowing that where he was in his dribble and where he was in his body shape, the only way he's hitting that ball is with the outside of his foot. So to me, it wasn't a, I don't trust my weaker foot. It was a half second read on this gap has opened up. If I hit it now, it will be where it needs to be. And that's exactly how that played out. So to me, that, that is why that assist stood out almost more than the goal is because he's reading things while on the dribble, while under pressure and still spots that opening. Well, and to your point, Taylor, he scores the goal with his left foot. So he's got, there we go. and there that's we a go. very small sample size. It's one shot. I, I get that, but he does nope, clearly have some it's skill done. with his left. And so that, that pass, you're, I think you're totally right. He hits it with his right foot because he sees the opening and needs to hit it quickly. He can't wait for the ball to then roll across his body and then hit it with his left foot. So sure, it might be some of that right foot dominance. I think that is part of the equation, but also. Man, what a play. He still has to tie this, tie, tie a little bow on this. Kate Cowell still has a lot of things to improve on. He sometimes presses too aggressively, sometimes not aggressively enough, sometimes picks out the wrong man. We saw that a few times against Houston in week one, but he has a lot of quality on the ball. I think he's still a little bit awkward. He's still growing into his body a little bit. He might need to develop more with his first touch and, and more with his back to goal. But man, between his technical quality that we saw on display in this game and his speed, he is a dangerous number nine, at least in possession and on the counterattack right now for San Jose. And then broadly speaking for San Jose, who uh, threw a whole two games, it's a whopping two game sample size, but we've got one win, one draw, four goals for three against. It seems like we're sort of setting the stage for another San Jose being up and down, having yes. strong performances in which they win and then uh, maybe less strong performances in which they do not. Yeah, San Jose are the wild cards of Major League Soccer, and Major League Soccer is the wild cards of, like, global <laughs> soccer. So, they're double wild cards. I have no idea how good they're going to be oh this year, but man, they are fun to watch. All right. Uh, well, a, a team that was maybe not quite as fun to watch because maybe they're a bit more predictable would be Sporting KC, uh, and Jean-Luc Busio, Jean-Luc Busio, excuse me, who I'm going to talk about next, unless you have anything else on Cade Cowell. No, bring us forward to Busio. All right, man. So he is a player who, I think I said this previously, seems like he should be 21 years of age because he's been around for so long. Uh, unlike Cade Cowell, who is, what, only 17, we do have a decent sample size for Busio, but he's also not a player who... I don't know if it's because it's Sporting KC and I don't watch them as much or because they don't have as many sort of appointment viewing games. I don't mean that to be disrespectful. It just sort of is what it is with Sporting KC in the last year or so. Like, I, I think I don't end up tuning in just to watch one player or just to watch this sort of like this event game the way you might with some other teams in the league. So watching this one specifically to watch Busio, I saw some things I liked. I saw some things I didn't like. And I'm excited to ask you about what you think of Busio and that team because I think you having much more familiarity with him will be able to tell me sort of what is and isn't uh, a fixture or ever present in his game. And Busio feels older because he had mutton chops for a several month period of time. <laughs> uh, so you're yeah. excused for thinking he's in his early 20s, even his late 20s. I'd, I'd give that to you as well. And even in the MLS like 25 event, he is not obviously 25, but uh, for the thing that was supposed to kick off last season and then COVID happened, uh, we were in New York for that one. And there was like David Beckham and Jorge uh, Moss were there. You had like different owners of different league or teams coming in. And then Busio was one of the players they had. I think they had Bar Marcelo Balboa and Gianluca Busio as their two sort of like spokespeople for the league. And it was strange to see that juxtaposition, which again brought this idea to mind that he is going to be this central figure for the league and this very important figure for both the league and for Sporting KC. Is that what you see of him, or do you think he has a ways to go before he sort of reaches that next level? 
I, I don't know how to answer that question, Taylor, because I've... Okay. I, and I think we're both on the same page. We're both a little bit mystified by, by Gianluca Busio. And okay. I have been for quite some time. He does some things really well, and we'll talk about that stuff. And I know you've got specific moments that you want to bring up. But he's also raw and makes poor decisions in certain areas as well, just like, to be fair, just like Cade Cowell does, or just like most young players do. But at the same time, of as all this is happening in, in MLS, he's getting this European interest. Tom Bogert, that's the second mention for Tom Bogert, bingo, on today's show, has reported that he's got, that Busio's got European interest from Italy. And it looks like teams are going to be circling or are already circling. So clearly people see something in him, and I can see some things in him, but he's not this flashy playmaker type that's really going to stand out on a, a league level for SKC. I'm excited to hear that it's a, like Serie A teams that are interested, and I probably shouldn't be that surprised because Brian Reynolds and, and uh, Weston McKinney doing well in Italy, so maybe they would open the doors more. But I think it's also because... It's Gianluca Busio. Yeah. Like that feels like a name that's meant to be playing in Italy, even yeah. if that sounds lazy and stereotyped. No, he, he, he does uh, so, have he does have Italian heritage, I believe. There so we go. I think, there I think we that's go. another reason for all of that. You're right. <laughs> yeah, and so let's let's talk about what they might be getting if somebody were to come in for him. Because what I saw in this game is a player who uh, in the four three three for Sporting KC in this game uh, seemed to be the central player, but was mostly operating as that false nine. He tended to be the one who dropped a little bit deeper, was the outlet if they're trying to clear or play out. And I think those are two very different scenarios. That's what I kept noting, is that when the ball was into his feet and he maybe had a yard to collect himself before somebody was immediately on him, he was much calmer. He could bring the ball down. He could operate really well and make smart decisions. But when that ball is a yard off the ground or it's in the air or it's just sort of played long because Sporting KC were just trying to get rid, then you're asking him to go up for 50-50s against center backs and against holding midfielders, and he's not going to win those as much. And so there are moments when he looks well above his age, when he can control the ball and make smart decisions, and then there's other moments where it's like, oh, right, he's a teenager as he goes flying through the air trying to win a 50-50. He does have some strength. That's actually something I think Busio does well. But you're right. He didn't handle himself flawlessly with his back to goal against Orlando City on Friday night. And mm -hmm. I think that's a lot because he doesn't usually play that number nine spot. He's playing it while Alan Polito is getting back to full fitness. Busio most often is playing facing forward, driving the ball forward. And so it was kind of a 50-50 performance from him, not in terms of always crashing for those 50-50 balls, but sometimes he would show the strength that you need from that player and the savviness with his back-to-goal that you need from that nine. And in other moments, Antonio Carlos specifically for Orlando City would just crash through him and win the ball or, or someone else would come and take it from him. So again, we're seeing some some rawness in Busio's game, and we've been seeing that for a while, but he's still young. There's time for that to be ironed out, but I'm going to be watching for that over the course of the season for sure. That's, that's interesting about the Polito point, because once Polito does come on for the second half, Busio does drop in and play more of the kind of central midfield position and, and does seem more suited to that one. I think, though, he does still have some some areas to work on, like maybe his defending. But let's talk about the positives first, because uh, he scores the goal, worth noting, in the one-to-one yeah. -one draw with Orlando City, uh, and Though, like, you could definitely create the narrative of, like, oh, there's some pressure, there's a turnover, and he gets the square ball and kind of passes it into the net. And that is technically what happened, but it removes a lot of different details, like the fact that he kept making the right choice when it came to his pursuit angles and the pressure he was applying, and I think kept putting himself in good positions to prevent easy outlet passes, like, like, just bypassing him entirely, and now what was the point of him getting forward, but also limiting what players were able to do, and that's where this goal comes from. He basically forces the goalkeeper to play it one way. He dumps the ball to the aforementioned Antonio Carlos, uh, who gets robbed by Daniel Saloy, and then squares it to Busio, and this is where Busio, I think, does really well to... Sometimes I think he holds the ball too long, and this is one where if he hits his first time, I think he puts it wide, or I think he puts it right at the goalkeeper. But because he holds it up and waits... He lets the defenders sort of overreact because now they're trying to scramble and adjust to what he's doing, goalkeeper doing the same to try to cover more of the goal, and he puts it basically into the near post because the keeper has vacated that space. And I think that read and that awareness were really good on what could be considered an easy goal because of where the ball was turned over and how little work he has to do, like little work, quote unquote, he has to do to make that happen. But I think there's a lot of really smart micro decisions in there that lead to a big moment. It really is a good finish from him. He he shapes his body initially to throw off Orlando City and to yep. throw off Pedro Gaese in goal for Orlando City. And then he just 
taps it into the near post or he kind of slaps it mm-hmm. almost into the near post in, into the near post <laughs> yeah. it kind of feels like taylor have you ever played foosball mm-hmm. yeah it, it kind of feels like in foosball you you wind the the leg of your yeah. little man back and then just whack it into yeah. the goal that kind of felt like what busio yeah. did but he did that after having gone through all that subterfuge and all all of that throwing mm-hmm. off orlando city it's a smart finish from him and it fits within the framework that we have for busio a little bit one of the best things that busio has done in mls so far in his young career is score goals. He's done it at a probably unsustainable rate. I don't have the numbers right in front of me at this moment, but he scored a disproportionate amount of goals in his time with SKC so far. This goal was a good goal. He's not always disciplined with his shots. Sometimes he'll take them from way too far away and <laughs> and they'll go way over. I know there was one of those in this game that you yeah. sent me, Taylor. Sorry, yeah. sorry to steal your thunder on that, but no, he takes good. bad shots sometimes, but he does get into the box in good spots. He does collect the ball well, and he has a really strong right foot to shoot and to slap the ball into the goal like he does here that is Busio's goal scoring ability is definitely something to like about his game I agree except to the point you made there that then (laughs) when I think he tries to do a little bit too much or just has that sort of I would say almost teenage moment of like I got this like there's the one in the second half yeah where the ball is sort of partially cleared he is the the sort of like mid deepest player who's there for if the ball is kind of poke clear off of a set piece or a corner and it goes like 30 yards from goal, he's there to collect it and redistribute. Instead, he takes a touch and hits it from maybe 35 out and it goes maybe 35 rows up. <laughs> not, a, not a well taken strike. And I think that in combination with other plays later on where he could play faster, he could combine more quickly and he takes an extra touch. He holds it up. He tries to dribble somebody one on one. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it pulls people out of position and creates openings for other players. But then there's moments when he has a one-two opportunity and just takes an extra touch and then goes to play it, realizes that play is no longer on. So now he tries to take another touch to see if he can open something else up. And eventually he dribbles into into the corner and loses the ball. I think it ends up being a throw and going the opposite way. But those moments where he slows it down, in contrast to when he slowed it down for the right reason to then score the goal, I think that's where he's got to maybe find some variation in the way he attacks. Because Yes, he's scoring goals, but we want to see him scoring those goals, but then also facilitating fast attacks when they need to happen and then slowing it down to allow better buildup when that needs to happen. So some of that decision making, I think, will be critical to how he develops and the role he ends up playing for this Sporting KC team this season. I'd also just like to see Busio pass the ball forward more often in a controlled sense. Right. He doesn't he doesn't really try to hit a lot of forward passes. He's a connector. I guess, but he's more of a connector with his dribbling. He'll he'll drive the ball forward out of midfield and then lay it off. He doesn't hit a lot of aggressive forward passes. I'm not even asking for through balls here. Just maybe if he's in in his own half for Sporting Kansas City, and then he he plays a little line breaking ball into the left winger or into Polito dropping off. I want to see more more moments like that and, and better vision from Busio and a willingness to actually move the ball forward, not off the dribble, and instead actually using using the pass. So that's just something yeah. to keep an eye out, something I'll be watching for from Busio this year. And there's time. There's time to develop this stuff. There certainly is. And I'm starring that because that's a thing that we talked about with Serginho Dest when he moved to Barcelona, how we kept seeing him dribble with the ball, how we kept seeing him pass laterally or drop it back, but we didn't see him taking too many risks, making those sort of like like uh, interior passes on the diagonal that splits a defender or pulls somebody out. And I think that is the type of thing that, yeah, we, we will have to watch and see how Busio develops. And if he starts looking for some of those passes, if we see him on the half turn, open up and then play the ball wide to somebody through two defenders, then we're going to know like, okay, he's trying to do more. He's trying to create more. He understands his role in the attack. So yeah, Joe, I think that's a perfect note to end this chat of uh, Jean-Luca Busio on. Beautiful. All right. Well, then we will be back to talk about four more Americans and a little bit of Champions League in just a moment. But first, a word from today's sponsor. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We are back. Joe, we've talked about our two MLS players this weekend. I think we're going to go abroad now to, I'm guessing, mostly Europe, if not completely Europe. Joe, where are we heading next? We are heading to Antarctica. No, we're, we're not. We're not going to Antarctica. <laughs> we're going to Spain, Taylor. I've waited long enough. I love talking right. about the MLS guys. It's in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. But it's Yunus Musa time. It's always Yunus Musa time. He started and played 61 minutes in Valencia's 1-1 draw with Alaves on Saturday. Taylor, Musa's gone through a couple stretches this year for Valencia where he just hasn't been playing. But finally, over the last couple of weeks, he's actually gotten more game time for Javi Gracia. He started each of their last two games and almost got a full game off the bench after an injury to one of the starters three games ago. So he, he starts this game, he gets to over gets just over 60 minutes, and I'm just really glad to see Yunus Musa back in the lineup doing Yunus Musa stuff. Yeah, I mean, and he did that Musa stuff, including the Musa maneuver. I mean, oh, yeah. it was it was really nice to see him him do the things that we want to see him do for a Valencia team that, while not having the greatest of seasons, we're pretty sure they won't get relegated. So there's that. <laughs> yeah, they're in a pretty good spot. I think they're in 14th in the league right now. They've yeah. got a little bit of a buffer mm-hmm. with five games or so to go in La Liga. So they're in an okay spot. I want to talk about a couple of those Musa maneuvers, Taylor. This first one I didn't send to you, but I'm going to talk about it anyway because I'm feeling a little bit edgy. In the 16th minute, Musa starts a counterattack for Valencia after recovering the ball in their own box. And, Val- and Musa does a lot of that for Valencia. He recovers a lot of second balls because he's mobile. He's that kind of player. He gets on the ball and just races down that right wing, Taylor. He beats one Alaves player for pace. He can't dribble past the second defender who comes to him, and he does end up losing the ball. So nothing comes of this play, but it made me remember, because it's been a while since I've watched a lot of Musa at club level, it made me remember just how effortlessly fast Yunus Musa is. He kind of has that Darlington Nagby-esque quality quality to him, where he just moves at 75% all the time. But then you realize that Musa's 75% is actually his 100%, and he's actually way faster than everyone else on the field. It it plays tricks on my mind. He is he's really, really fast, Taylor. He is, and he reminds me of... I'm trying to think of a good analogy for this, but I'm going to do like a cross analogy of the first one being when you see somebody who, I think I've talked about this before, when you see somebody who came to soccer later in life and started playing, uh, there, there can be a stiffness to the way they play. And so you can always tell like a player who's played their whole life versus a player who's kind of new to the game. And where that extends to, to Musa is almost like when Neo in the Matrix like first starts getting his powers <laughs> versus when he suddenly can fight Morpheus and you're like, oh, okay, so this guy's real good. And it's the, the way he's able to sort of make these quick little moves inside of the Musa maneuver to throw a defender off. At one point, I think in one of the plays you sent me, he fully opens his legs as though he's going to meg himself. And the defender sort of freezes because he cannot tell where he's going to go. And then I think Musa like just goes right around him. But it's this weird in the middle of a full speed run to sort of be like, huh, where am I going? And then he goes. And it's just like, I don't know how you think that quickly. I never could. I never had the ability to pull off that kind of move at full speed. And certainly Musa is way better at soccer than I am, but also seems to be way better as a creative player than many other players uh, we tend to talk about. Oh, absolutely. He doesn't play a lot of those line-breaking through balls. He's not a classic number 10, but he progresses the ball really well on the dribble. And for listeners who either didn't hear when we instituted that phrase, the Musa maneuver, or have forgotten, essentially what we coined that term to mean and to represent is just those runs that Musa has. Most often with Valencia, they're out on the right wing because he plays as that right midfielder in a 4-4-2. But the second one in the, the clip that I did send you, Taylor, the maneuver happens centrally, like it will with the U.S. men's national team. He gets on the ball after Alavés play long, and he he faints away from a defender. He drives forward. He cuts across Alaves's number six, and then their number eight. So he he cuts across both of their uh, both of their d- members of that double pivot. So he's eliminated their entire midfield, and then plays the ball over to the left to Gonzalo Guedes on that on that side for Valencia. And they've just moved the ball from their own half after Alaves just had the ball. Now all of a sudden it's at the feet of one of their best attacking players. That's Yunus Musa's game. This is why Greg Berhalter has him playing as a central midfielder because he can progress the ball safely and reliably in central spaces, in the most valuable spaces, in a way that few, maybe no other players in the U.S. pool can. Yunus Musa is real good, Taylor. Like, real good. (laughs) 
It does start to feel like we have uh, more depth than we've ever had at central midfield, uh, both because of Musa and a player I'm going to talk about later on. Uh, how are you feeling about his role with the national team and where he fits in? I feel so good. I, I feel like usually, Taylor, <laughs> usually uh, we're both pretty measured, but usually you, you get a little uh-huh. bit more excited than I do. And I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, sample size, sample size, his underlying mm-hmm. numbers, blah, blah, blah. With Kate Cal and Eunice Musa, especially Musa, I, I lose that filter. I, he's such a smooth player. He really is like the, the new Nagmi, but Nagby, but he does more things and is still young and could actually add more elements to his game, like more forward passing, like a little bit better vision and maybe a few, fewer touches here and there, closing down the ball, maybe with a little bit more intensity at times or, or with a little less in other moments. He's got time to mold all of these, these things and to grow these attributes. He's 18 years old. Every time I watch him, I feel more confident that Moose is going to be a big-time player for the U.S. and even for whatever club he's playing for over the next decade or 15 years or whatever it's going to be. So I was going to ask you about that, about do you want to see him stay with Valencia if they stay up uh, like because of where they are and if that gives him more opportunities. But instead, what I think we should do is maybe as we get closer to the end of the season, uh, go over some of these players with a like sort of what do we want to happen next yeah. episode? And we can talk about should they stay, should they go, if they should go, where should they go, what fits best? And we can sort of have that conversation then because I do... I'm of a mixed opinion with Yunus Musa. If he's going to get minutes with Valencia in La Liga, and they're obviously historically a very big team, I, I don't hate that. But also if it means they're in another battle and they're sort of doing with what they have as they can, that's not really a recipe for stability. Just ask Schalke. So, uh, <laughs> Joe, maybe we can do that uh, another time for now. Anything else you wanted to get to when it comes to Yunus Musa? No, that's it for me. And that show sounds great. Let's Let's do that. We should make that happen. All right. All right, I look forward to it. What sounds less great is the situation with uh, Bovista and Reggie Cannon. Hmm. Uh, I wanted to talk about this one sort of because of what I saw from him in the game, but mostly because last week I went on Club and Country uh, with uh, Weeby and David Goss, and we were talking about the kind of most successful campaigns for an American this past season. And before we started recording, I mentioned like, hey, like, what about Reggie Cannon? And they were all like, ah, oh, well, there's the whole financial situation. And I was like, yes, the financial situation that we've all paid attention to. What now, huh? <laughs> so I did some more reading because we talked about it a little bit there. But I think it's worth noting because it dates back to December. So I, I probably should have been more aware of this one, but wanted to keep people like updated as to the situation sure. with Canon, where basically he moves to Bovista in the Portuguese league. Bovista not the most successful team historically, but there's an idea that because they have the same owner, or at least I think minority owner for Bovista, Bovista as do Lille, that it's going to be this jump where he'll move from Bovista, he'll play a season there, then he'll move to Lille once they're ready for him, he'll fit in there, and it all makes sense. Um, that is no longer the case, because it wasn't the case as of December, when Lille owner uh, Gerard Lopez, who had acquired a controlling stake in Bovista this past summer, he then sells that ownership interest in Lille, uh, essentially because he is no longer financing the debt at a rate that he needs to be, which means that now Lille have a new owner, you don't have that club connection to Bovista, so then the question of what happens with Reggie Cannon looms a little bit uh, more large, because we also have Bovista in the relegation playoffs spot, I think, in the Portuguese league. They're 16th out of 18 clubs. They've lost their last two games. They have five remaining. They are two points behind both Rio Ave and uh, Maritimo, who they lost to this past weekend 1-0. So a situation that seemed like a positive move for a young American to then make the next positive move now moves into potential cautionary tale mode of don't always assume that things are going to go a certain way because otherwise you might be stuck playing for a relegation threatened Portuguese team for a while. You've just, you've got to really feel for Reggie Cannon in all of this, yeah. right? It's kind of like maybe a slightly less extreme version of what's happening with Inter Miami right now with Matias Pellegrini. Paul and Sam talked about this on Allocation Disorder yeah. and did some exactly. great reporting on yeah. this. But Miami bring in Pellegrini and then realize they're not roster compliant and they have to, you know, ship him down to their USL team, but he's still training with the team, but he's not eligible to play. And it's this whole mess with Reggie Cannon. You go over to Boavista with the idea or originally as Dallas is certainly negotiating with Boavista, you assume that you're going to be there for a year and then probably go and play for Lille in Liga at a good level with a very good team and potentially compete for a a starting spot with that group and play Champions League. And now, all that's happened is that Reggie Cannon's been stuck on a relegation-threatened Portuguese team, and he probably never would have made that move. Maybe he would have. I don't know. I'm not Reggie Cannon. But it certainly is not what he thought it was going to be, and, and 
that's tough. That's a really tough situation. It is, and it's a tough situation because I think, like, expecting that leap forgives maybe some of the the rustiness of the team you're playing for. If you know you're going to be playing for a really good team next season, maybe you're more okay with playing for a team that isn't quite as good because you sort of know things are structured in such a way that you know where it's going to go, you know what the move is going to be, you know how, how you fit into the plan. And once part of that plan is removed, especially the future looming large part, what you're left with is playing for a team that, as I said, just aren't as good uh, as maybe Reggie Cannon is. Uh, I, I wouldn't say he's their best player, but I saw moments in this game like the one I sent you, but there are many other ones in which you can see him making plays, making decisions that are a half second to a second to sometimes many seconds ahead of his teammates. So the one I sent to Joe uh, is basically him getting a ball driven to him out wide. It's bouncing. So it's maybe a like waist height. He has to make a choice. And the choice he makes is to sort of jump a little bit. And it's an outstretched like instep of his right foot to bring the ball under control. I thought that was already good technical ability and sh- sort of showed the difference that he can make up for a bad ball out wide. That shouldn't have been that bad. But then with his next pass, he does the, again, the in, kind of incisive interior diagonal on the floor pass that his teammate did not, I think, recognize he was going to be able to hit. And so that teammate is then a half yard behind it, doesn't get the leg to it. And if he's playing for a team that are more alive, I think a Leo player, Jonathan David, even Timothy Weah, even uh, Barack Yilmaz is, is making that run, is receiving that pass. And if th- that player gets a touch to the ball... They're in on goal one-on-one, or at the very least, it's a very good goal-scoring opportunity that, because they're not alive to that moment, doesn't end up coming to fruition. So I think I just, like, I wanted to mention Reggie Cannon to show the ownership situation and how things have changed, but also to point out that he has not changed. He remains a a good player who probably should be playing for a better team, and that is a thing I hope uh, happens. So maybe when we do that, what, what do we hope happens next season show? We can talk about some possible ideal destinations for him and it can be a happier conversation. Does that sound good, Joe? That sounds great. I- I'm just wondering, first of all, you naming a bunch of Lille attackers off the top of your head. I know D- David and Wea, maybe not so impressive, but throwing in a third guy into that group. That's, that's good work, Taylor, <laughs> off the top of your nog. And I Thank assume you, maybe you wrote all that down. Thank you. Whatever. But I, I, I think, not. I think, uh, with Reggie Cannon, I'm wondering because of the financial s- situation that potentially Boavista are in right now, is he more likely to go? I'm just, you know, tossing out questions here, but is mm-hmm. he more likely to be sold? Because then that could be kind of a positive ending to the season, whether or not Bovista get relegated. They're not playing really good, fun-to-watch soccer. I don't think they're necessarily playing a style that suits Reggie Cannon all that well. It's not at all like what he was doing with FC Dallas. I'm wondering if he might be more likely to go than a guy like Yunus Musa. But, I mean, we'll find out, and we can make our hypothetical situations on that episode. We can. I I can say, though, that I think you've got a point there, because I think there's also a sell-on clause uh, that FC Dallas will get a little bit of that money, I believe I'm correct in saying, Mm -hmm. which means then that if you're Bovista and you are potentially relegation threatened, or if they were to be relegated, you're, you're not getting more money for him than you probably ever would right now. Yeah. So especially if you've got to give some money back to Dallas and a larger Portuguese team comes in or somebody in Spain or elsewhere throws you a decent-sized offer, you might be more inclined to take that so you can pay off that sell-on fee but still have money to then reinvest. So you're right, Joe. Things aren't maybe as bleak as I had made them. I appreciate the positivity. Well, and and I know a team here in the United States that, that's not gotten a win so far in their first two MLS <laughs> games, FC Dallas, that might be looking for a right back. What happens oh, if you buy okay. back your own player with your own sell-on clause? Do you just... You just get a little extra money from that sale, right? You pay yourself? I'm not, yeah. I'm not really sure how that works. <laughs> which which team uh, without a win in Major League Soccer? So Colorado and Dallas both have draws. Minnesota has yet to win. Uh, oh, we've got a few teams that have yet to win in the East. Let's go with teams that haven't like won or drawn, that haven't gotten a point yet. So who needs it more, New York or Minnesota? The Red oh, Bulls or Minnesota? They actually both have pretty decent right-back situations. I'm going to send him to Minnesota Uh-oh. just because okay. I want him to have a chance to pass the ball a little bit. And if you're playing for Gerhard Struber and the Red Bulls, you're probably not going to be quote-unquote passing. You might be booting the ball forward strategically. The, the style is legitimate, but you're not going to be playing in, in a real possession structure. So, Adrian Heath, you're welcome. Just made that deal for you. Uh, my commission, yeah. yeah, just send it to me. You have my address. And I think it's. I think I also like it because we go from uh, Dallas, where I'm going to assume it gets 
uh, a little temperate, a little bit warm, and then Boavista, I'm going to guess, is, is somewhat milder, somewhat in between. So now let's end up to Minnesota and we can get <laughs> the full extremes of all the different temperatures and then, and then decide what works best for him. So until he moves to Minnesota, until we do our show about where he should move next, uh, Joe, I think we, we can feel confident that Reggie Cannon will probably move somewhere at some point and it will be fine. Yeah, well said. We really hedged our bets on that one. He's going to move somewhere <laughs> at some point. You heard it here first, folks. And it'll be... Probably. Okay. There we go. <laughs> now we've hedged it fully. Uh, two more players still to be discussed. First, a word from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Joe Lowry, uh, we've talked four, two remaining. Who are we talking next? Christian Pulisic. He started, played yep. 74 minutes in Chelsea's one nothing win over West Ham on Saturday. This was a big game for Chelsea Taylor. I mean, they, they've been almost level with West Ham, or at least close on the table for a little bit now. And so they, they win this game, and now they're fourth, and West Ham are behind them. And then this game as well, as we're recording right now, the Champions League is going on, and Chelsea are playing. This game for them over the weekend sets them up for that battle against Real Madrid. So Christian Pulisic starts in this game. He's starting against Real Madrid, Real Madrid as we're recording right now. That's a good sign. The, the Pulisic redemp- yeah. the redemption arc is very real at this point. I like the Pulisic redemption arc. I didn't realize that that was a, a new like uh, narrative structure that we're going with. <laughs> I'm into it. Well, I mean, we just had all this talk about, and I think we did a fairly good job of staying even and staying measured in our discussions about it, but mm-hmm. Pulisic wasn't playing under Thomas Tuchel for a while. Yep. He got one start in a cup game, and, and that was about it as far as his minutes for Chelsea. And so now he is a regular starter for them, even after I told you and Ryan that I didn't think that was going to happen after a, a Champions League performance against Porto. But he's in the lineup regularly, and he's doing some things really Really well, Taylor. He's finding little pockets of space all across the field, but especially in this game, I noticed him attacking the box very well. And some folks have done good work analyzing this in the past. John Muller's definitely one that I can remember off the top of my head. But Pulisic's movement and his willingness and aggression to get into the box as his team is attacking around him is is top notch. In the fourth minute, he gets into the box on the left side from that left attacking midfielder, left winger spot in the 3-4-3. He gets into the left side of the box. And then as the attack is coming on that right side for Chelsea, he makes a little 90 degree cut. So he's going straight and then cuts to his right to try to ditch his defender and meet the ball as it comes in. He doesn't end up being able to do much with that ball, but it's a nice idea to get into space. He does a very similar thing in the fifth minute. Then in the 15th minute, the, the attack's coming down the right side. Pulisic shifts centrally because Timo Werner's already drifted out wide. So Pulisic stays centrally and is patient. He finds that little bit of space right in front of West Ham's defenders and takes a shot from 12 yards out. The goalkeeper saves it, but another nice idea. One thing that Greg Berhalter always preaches, Taylor, is, is movement in the box and players arriving in the box Christian Pulisic is that player for Chelsea, and he's that player for the U.S. too. And I think that's a big reason on top of the fact that he's one of the most skillful players in the pool. But I think that's a big reason why Berhalter likes him so much and will continue to use him going forward. I think Berhalter certainly likes what, what Christian Pulisic brings to the table. I, I really enjoy that Thomas Tuchel seems to be enjoying it more as well. And I really enjoy when he uses Mason Mount in that same starting 11. A sentence I wasn't sure I would ever say, but I'm saying now, both because I think it does complement Pulisic. I think they play together really well and I think bring sort of a good awareness between the two. But it's also because I, I have trouble telling them apart. And I think Mount is 19, Pulisic is 10. So even sometimes if you're pausing it, it can be like, wait, which one is the 10 and which one is the 9? Uh, but I I mean that mostly because in the best possible way, they play similar. And I watch Mount 
bring, similar to what I just talked about with Reggie Cannon, like bringing a driven ball down that he has no business controlling, doing that first time, and then I'll see him do it again and think like, oh man, Mason Mount's, oh wait, that was Christian Pulisic. And it's sort of, it's cool to see that they both, uh, I, I think Mount was in such good form for so long that it felt like he had maybe developmentally moved pretty far ahead of Pulisic at times in my mind, and to see them looking like the same player both physically and in terms of the skill set they're bringing to the equation uh, is is even more positive uh, for Christian Pulisic, in my opinion. Yeah, they do some of the same things. They're both dangerous on the dribble. I had that same thing. Taylor, I was watching Christian Pulisic in this game, and uh, somebody played a long ball out of Chelsea's half, and this attacker got on the end of it and then had a really nice dribble in an attacking moment. And I was like, oh, good job, Christian Pulisic. I'm going to write that one down. And then I rewound it, and it was Mason Mount. So I have the same issue that you do. But they have they have some similar skills, but they also complement each other really well. Mount can do a little bit more of the defensive dirty work, which then frees up Pulisic to be a little bit more attacking on that left side. They can swap sides. They can interchange. They did that some against Porto in the second leg in the Champions League. It, it just works right now, and it is working for Chelsea. The one other main thing I want to talk about with Pulisic is he gets the MLS assist on Chelsea's one goal. I'm staying on brand with that MLS assist name. You like that? Um, I'm, I'm yep. here for it. I mean, as well, you should. You created it, and it's now your thing. Yeah, so he, he No gets, one else gets it. Right, of course not. Okay, then Christian Pulisic doesn't get the MLS. He does. He gets the MLS assist. <laughs> Timo Werner holds the ball up as that number nine, and then he lays it off to Pulisic. Pulisic then takes an aggressive forward touch with his first touch. And that little touch is enough to force West Ham's right wing back Vladimir Kufal back on his heels for just a split second. So as Pulisic unbalances Kufal for just a moment, right in that moment, just as the defender is back, Pulisic drives and, and plays that ball forward out to the left side for Ben Chilwell, who now has a little bit of extra space because of what Pulisic did to Kufal. So Chilwell then has the ball in a dangerous area, cuts the ball back to Timo Werner and that's a goal for Chelsea. So Christian Pulisic is dangerous on the dribble because we see all those flashy 1v1s that I love watching, but also he can use that as a really effective weapon to create space for people around him. And we we definitely see that on this goal for Chelsea and creating space for Ben Chilwell. And I think the other thing we see in this goal, uh, we talked about this a bit on the on the weekend review, is that it's N'Golo Kante, uh, I think it's two touches, he receives the ball, he plays the ball. I don't think West Ham think he's going to be able to play it that quickly or have the options he does, especially with Timo Werner sort of dropping in and finding a little opening. So when that ball uh, from Kante is played in, it does unlock West Ham a little bit. And at that moment, I think if Chelsea didn't have everybody alive to the opportunity, if you then have to get people making those runs, if you have a Boavista approach to things of like, oh, okay, now that's on, now I'll start running. The attack breaks down because you have to slow down, or even if it doesn't break down, at the very least, you let West Ham get into a more comfortable position. And I'm building all that to say that when Conte plays that ball and it's going into Werner, Pulisic is alive to it and is already moving to make a support run to be an option for Werner to play that pass to then keep the dominoes falling for West Ham. And I just like that, again, we're talking about a player who seemed to be on the outs or wasn't getting those consistent starts, and I think it was starting to become more of a concern for me. I'll speak for myself there. And so now to see him playing for a team where not only is he helping create opportunities and occasionally uh, scoring or assisting, but we're also seeing him just be familiar with the patterns and the demands of a demanding manager and fulfilling them such that he continues to play. It's, it's positive growth. It's positive signs across the board. Yeah, I totally agree. Christian Pulisic is so proactive. He does fit within the structure that Tuchel has positionally. He's a really nice fit for that left winger spot that, that comes in and tucks inside and plays off of that number nine. He's playing really well for Chelsea right now. He played well mm-hmm. in this game, and I think we're going to see big things from him for the rest of this season. All right. So big things for Christian Pulisic. Uh, and we'll talk about maybe hopefully more big things from him uh, in the Champions League. As Joe mentioned, that game is happening right now. Uh, myself, Joe and Ryan will be back on Wednesday evening to review both the first legs of the Champions League semifinals. They were not postponed. We don't have PSG as our champions uh, because everybody else walked away. We are getting those games and we will talk about them. Uh, RB Salzburg, Red Bull Salzburg are not involved in the Champions League semifinals. Shock of all shocks, but we are still going to talk about Brendan Aronson, if that works for you, Joe. Oh, it totally works for me. (laughs) I thought it might, uh, because he had a pretty good weekend uh, as Red Bull Salzburg won over Wolfsburger 2-1. And 
This was I, I was looking for quotes about Philadelphia because Brendan Aronson is, is a Philadelphia fella. Uh, and a lot of them were coming from uh, always sun, uh, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, but what I'm going to go with instead is one from uh, I, I basically looked up quotes about Philadelphia to find the right one. This is the one I'm going with from Lisa Scottaline. Uh, I love the dignity of the name Philadelphia, but at heart, we're Philly. And that is a good way to describe Brendan Aronson, who has the the skillful, like, Pose the skillful ability of this like very very good accomplished player, but then also has the scrap and the fight for somebody from Philly, and and that was what was on display uh, this past weekend where he is not backing down from a challenge. He will fight. He will like poke tackle. He will physically tackle. He will knock people off the ball. If he gets knocked off the ball, he will pop right back up. He seems to have that sort of the. The Rocky mentality of like, knock me down and I'll get right back up. I'm not letting you hurt me. And so I, I, the scrap is there. The willingness to fight is there. But then when combined with the technical ability and just constantly trying stuff, I, I find him to be one of the most fun players when we get to talk about them. Whenever there's a weekend review and they do anything, Salzburg, I'm sort of like, all right, let's talk about Brendan Aronson because I know it's going to be good. I know you end up talking about him a lot as well, Joe. So is he that type of player for you? Are there things about him that you find particularly engaging? Okay, it, right off the top, Adam Snavely <laughs> is so proud of you right now for introing this entire segment with a random quote about Philadelphia that you found online. Thank Are you, you kidding me? Thank that you. is that is elite <laughs> level stuff. Uh, at, at this point, I've forgotten your question. Uh, something about Brendan Aronson and how good he is, right? I think we can talk about yeah, that. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> sure. he, he He's doing so much well for Salzburg right now, and a lot of that's because yeah. he's a good player. And a lot of that is because of how Salzburg play. It was such a good move for him to go from the Union and, and Jim Curtin and how they're playing under Ernst Tanner and Jim Curtin in that 4-4-2 diamond. More aggressive, more on the front foot, not a, a not a ton of possession, more in transition. Salzburg do the same thing. Sometimes they have a lot of the ball because they're, they're a bigger team with more talent than a lot of the other teams in the Austrian Bundesliga. So there is some possession, just like there was in Philadelphia, but it's all about transition moments. Aronson has that engine. He has that work rate. He has that, that, that not necessarily strength, but kind of that wiriness to go in and slither right by you and take the ball from you or, or to beat you on the dribble. He tries things. He's got so much skill in tight spaces. This season has been a, a massive success for Aronson, and he's just come over midway through the year for RB Salzburg. He's established himself as a regular starter. I honestly don't think you could ask for a whole lot more from him and, and from this move to Salzburg in general. I agree. And I, and I agree for everything you've said and for many other reasons, including the biggest one lately has been that you're absolutely right, that they are sort of at least like lately historically the best team in the Austrian Bundesliga they have the connection to Red Bull so they've got lots of talent coming through they tend to do really really well but then there's the like other side of that coin which is that they're not Man City they're not spending a ton of money on this team yes they're spending some money but they're not bringing in consistently world class players to con- totally elevate this performance they're bringing in young talented players to play in a division that maybe they're going to be some of the best players but that means that those teams are going to set up to try to nullify them, to try to negate what they want to do. And so every team in that league is setting up to, uh, not always, but I think a lot of those teams are going to set up to defend, to frustrate, to try to limit what Salzburg are doing. So they are constantly having to adjust, having to be the ones to sort of look at what the other team is doing defensively and try new things or trust the system to eventually break it down. And all of that is to say that I think for uh, Brendan Aronson to go to a team that have a lot of familiarity to him in terms of the system and the style, but then also make him raise his game and make him elevate his decision making and the way he adjusts to defensive teams, it is only going to help him because instead of just doing the same things and playing the same style, if you have to change it up, if you can't be as, we don't need you to be as direct this time. Okay. This week we need you to be more direct. Okay. This time we need you to just stay in the box and occupy defenders. Like I think they have to try different things each week to fight back against teams who are bunkered. And I think as long as that makes him then develop and change what he's doing from game to game, I think it's going to help him develop a much broader skill set. And I just can't wait until January 
2022, so this next January, when Jesse Marsh mm-hmm. buys Brendan Aronson from RB <laughs> yep. Salzburg to RB Leipzig. I mean, that mm-hmm. feels like it's going to happen, right? I don't know if Marsh is going to get the, the Leipzig job or not, but if he does, it feels like another half season for Aronson at Salzburg. Then, man, maybe I'm, I'm spilling out content for our end of year American <laughs> show and, and where they should move, but I think there's a real chance that we see another American reunion, the same one we're getting right now in Salzburg, just in Leipzig in about seven months. Yeah, let's just keep the, the, the track going of, let's say, uh, Subosloy becomes this instrumental player for the team for the first half of next season. And then somebody come in and spend, I don't know, 30 or 40 million to sign this young promising attacker. And then maybe just Brendan Aronson, as he did with Salzburg when he's filling in the shoes there. Now he just does the same for Leipzig. And then that move makes even more sense. So let's just hope that the development factory continues for Red Bull, which is not a thing I expected to say about a giant multinational conglomerate that I'm like, yeah, let's root for them. But in this case, I will root for them and I will always root for Brendan Aronson. And to connect it back to the point of this show, so to Will Greg Berhalter, I think because when you talked about Berhalter wanting players to have movement in the box and to kind of arrive late or keep moving, keep adjusting so that they're not just static. I saw that a lot from Aronson in this game. I think one of the clips I sent you, he has a couple simple passes. He's kind of hovering around the top of the box, making sure that like possession is retained, the ball keeps moving. But once the attacking situation presents itself, I think he recognizes there are opportunities and he finds a gap inside the 18, maybe 12 yards from goal or so anticipates the pressure coming from one direction and does a a roulette to go the other side and gets the shot off. The shot is blocked. But I think that he's able to read and adapt what he's doing while in the box. It was just a moment of like, oh, I'm not sure how many players we have had over the years who can do that sort of reading the, the attacking situation, getting into the space, and then still pulling off a technical move to set himself up for a really good shooting chance. All of it made me very happy about Brendan Aronson. So when I was growing up, Taylor, and playing sports, basketball, soccer, whatever, uh, I was really good at reading reading the game and reading space. And I think that's a lot of why I watch stuff in the way that I do now, why I watch mm-hmm. soccer in the way that I do. My issue was that I just wasn't very good. So I, I could see what needed to be done, but I didn't have the skill to do it. Brendan Aronson sees what need, sees what needs to be done, and he can execute it. In that moment in the box, he knows what needs to happen, and he pulls out this ridiculous roulette that you just talked about, and it's it's unreal. It's this it's this crazy skillful moment that has all come about because he knows where to go, he knows where to be, he sees the game, and he has the talent to actually pull things off, a la Clint Dempsey trying stuff. So. Man, yeah, Brendan Aronson is a very talented young player, and uh, he's got vision and he's got skill to boot. Yeah, and he and he's got the uh, the the dignity combined with the scrap of Philadelphia versus Philly. Because the other moment I wanted to to spotlight was when he plays a really good through ball. It doesn't end up leading to a goal. But it comes about from like him fighting and, and helping win the ball back. Then he rides a challenge while he's waiting for a, an opponent or a teammate to, to make the run that he expects to happen. And when that teammate then changes direction and instead of it being sort of a straight line towards the far corner, he, he cuts towards the near corner. Aronson is already shaping to play that ball wide and is able to sort of delay that pass to then play a better ball into the path of the striker. And it's just uh, like not so often. I feel like we see that pass, especially not even in an MLS, but just in, in lots of different competitions. We see that ball still go to the wrong side because, Oh, that passes on. I'm putting my head down and I'm playing that ball. And that he, I think the second the teammate adjusts the run, Aronson then adjusts what he's doing. And so he's not just improvising and sort of doing his own thing with tunnel vision. He's improvising, but also reading the game at the same time. And it's a lot of different uh, abilities. It's like playing the drums, which I could never do because it requires like your feet moving independently of your hands to do different things at different times. And that completely flummoxes me. But I suspect Brendan Aronson would be a fine drummer. So if the U.S. men's national team player pool ever yep. does decide to start a band, yep. we know exactly yep. where Brendan Aronson's going to be in that whole equation. He's going to be on the drum set. Unless we want a sort of like Ringo star metronome Hmm. type drummer who is never going to like lose the beat, but maybe isn't going to be that like crazy of a soloist. That feels like Tyler Adams. Tyler Adams is going to be our consistent, keeps the beat, keeps it going. Everything is as it should be. Maybe we get a a, a small solo here and there. Whereas I think Brendan Aronson is giving us a lot more uh, big, loud solos when we need them. Weston McKinney's on electric guitar, and no one will convince me. Yeah, otherwise. I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> he he might just be uh, 
like lead singer too. I, I yeah. could see him as like the dude. The, I, I was trying to think of like a better analogy than Flava Flav because nobody needs to be compared to that. Like or like the dude from Mighty Mighty Bostones who just dances. Joe, I know that's way ahead of your time. <laughs> I apologize, but uh, like yeah, I think Weston McKinney is just the hype man yeah, who we true, have. True. Like he's just. I don't know if he's a full front man. I'm not sure who the lead singer of the U.S. national team band is, but we'll have to figure that one out. Joe, that's a different show for a different time. Well, and this is just a listener question for for whoever out there wants to take this and actually send it to us. (laughs) We've just done your work for you. You're welcome. You are welcome. And, <laughs> and now I'm really going to have to uh, to think about these things. Uh, I will do that off air, I promise. Instead, while we still have some time, Joe, we should talk about uh, our Champions League game on Wednesday. A little too late to predict what's going to happen uh, in today's game. But in uh, the game between PSG and Man City, PSG at home... Do you have any expectations, Joe? Do you have anything in particular you're going to be watching for? I do, yeah. I think this game's set up to be somewhat predictable. Not boring. Note, not boring, Mm -hmm. but predictable. I think we're going to see Manchester City dominate the ball and PSG play a 4-4-2 block. I mean, I guess they could tweak the positioning a little bit. Pochettino could roll out something different. But they're going to play against the ball back in their own half, likely absorb pressure and then attack on the counter. They're going to get out in space with Mbappe, with Neymar, with even Angel Di Maria a little bit and try to expose Manchester City in the way that Erling Holland and Dortmund tried to do. And Holland had a couple moments where he succeeded. But City's really going to have to try to contain that counterattacking threat while they also try to break PSG down. I think it's going to make for a really interesting tactical battle and a game with a lot of star power that should just generally be fun to watch. I, I agree with everything you said, and I would double down on the the importance for Men City of negating the PSG counterattack threat and for PSG really emphasizing that because whereas with Dortmund, you have Erling Haaland who is sort of unplayable at times in those 1v1s, he is just the one player. And Dortmund had so many injuries and so many players not able to participate. You look at who PSG could be bringing out in that attack and it's Neymar and Mbappe certainly, but it's Angel Di Maria, it's, it's many other very good attackers, not even mentioning like some of their out and out, just straight up number nines. Like, so City could have a lot of different attacking threats to deal with. And that's where, in contrast to some of the other games or some of the other opponents City have had in the Champions League, this one feels the most like it's an opportunity for the Pep Guardiola overthink. And I, maybe he's moved past that. Maybe that's a thing of, of yesteryear. And now he knows exactly what he wants from his team and has all of the different looks down. He doesn't have to change it up, but, you can't have a massively high line and play that high press against PSG and not have that fear that with the technical ability and the talent PSG have, that if they play through that press once and you leave like Kylian Mbappe in a 1v1 foot race, you are in trouble. And I could see a scenario, I'm not saying it will happen, but I could see a scenario in which Pep try something different, be that maybe going a little bit more conservative to invite PSG on and then try to counterattack them, or if it's trying to man-mark them or trying to really just nullify any sort of balls in. I don't know what he will do, but I think there's a possibility that we see a slight overthink from Pep in this one. Uh, what do you make of that theory, Joe? It's possible. It, it is possible. I don't think we've seen a ton of Pep overthinks in, in recent memory, at least in my recent memory. Again, memory yeah, of a goldfish. But Mm -hmm. it feels to me like this one fits pretty well naturally on paper with the approaches that the two teams have had coming into this game. Would it shock me if we saw Guardiola try to do something a little bit different, either from a personnel standpoint or from a tactical standpoint? No. But to me, it feels like this game against PSG specifically is is the whole reason why Guardiola plays the style of soccer that he plays in the first place. They hold the ball as, yes, an offensive mechanism and a way to score goals, but they also hold the ball so that the other team can't have the ball. If PSG don't have the ball, they can't score. If Mbappe doesn't have the ball, if Neymar doesn't have the ball, they can't cause any problems for you. And so this game is really going to be a test of how... I guess this is really, really macro, really bird's eye view, but of how effective Guardiola's chosen style of soccer is. We're going to see two different approaches in this game. And and I think this is a a big, it's not a test because it's been proven already, but it's another, it's another interesting case study of how Guardiola's chosen tactical approach actually works in practicality. Mm -hmm. And I think with that, how his, that practicality when it comes to the professional foul. I also want to see how that works in this game because that's the thing we saw them do against Tottenham anytime. And we've seen them do it in the past as well. A lot of Pep teams have done it that anytime there is that counterattacking opportunity or it seems like there's a mismatch, the instruction seems to be 
go for the ball, make a play, but if you got to bring the player down, if you got to commit that foul, so be it. If you got to pick up a yellow, so be it. But Man City, especially this past weekend, are very good about not drawing that early yellow, not getting it on the first or second or even third one. Sometimes it takes a few before eventually the pro- professional foul is penalized. And even this past weekend, we talked about it again on the weekend review, but like, uh, Ruben Dias has one that is absolutely a yellow card and just the way he, he gets up and protests and is yelling that he got the ball and the teammates surround, it doesn't end up being a yellow. And if City are able to influence the decisions, if they're not, if that sort of thing isn't stamped out pretty quickly, then that is a way I think they can deal with the counter and it can be effective at it. The referee for this one will be Felix Breek, who I think a lot of people will recognize. He's the younger German fella. Uh, I'm looking at his history. He tends to hand out, I think, a minimum of like three cards a game, at least in recent matches, a few red cards in there as well. Most of those red cards being for second yellows. So if we see a Manchester City professional, professional foul punished with a yellow card in the first 15 or 20 minutes, that would be a worrying sign, I think, if you're a City fan, because that means the official is on it and not going to let that go. And if that's a way you're trying to limit the counterattacking threats, and it's a thing that is now being punished with cards pretty re- like regularly and readily, you got to worry about it. You got to change it up. And that could play into PSG's hands. So that's the other thing I would say could be in PSG's favor, depending on how the official decides to call the game. That's such a good point. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I hadn't even thought about how the referee might impact this game. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about referees, I guess, but that's a big you. part of you. you're right. That's a big part of what Man City try to do when they don't have the ball is they don't want to let you get out get out into space. And when PSG wants to do that, there's there's two conflicting forces here. And mm-hmm. the referee is the one who kind of gets to decide, at least in certain moments, which force is going to win in those individual actions. So yeah, I, I'm now gonna be watching the ref's front pocket and back pocket to see what on earth happens in this game. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to be watching that and a whole lot more, and then we'll be back to discuss it tomorrow evening, both of those games. Thursday, we'll be doing some listener questions. Uh, Friday, we will be doing uh, Allocation Disorder, as is tradition. Uh, Joe Lowry, until we do all of those things, anything else to talk about today? No, not a thing from me. All right, my friend. Then, listeners, thank you all so much for listening. Joe, thank you again for returning to the program to talk Americans, both abroad and domestic. Of course, it's always a blast. Listeners, thank you so much for listening, and we will be back very soon with another Total Soccer Show episode.